You know, if you've um, identified somebody who's had the right travel history and signs and symptoms and you suspect they could have Ebola virus disease, you've got to inform the other responders on uh, on the scene um, that uh, you suspect that uh, this person might have Ebola virus disease. And so uh, you do that to make sure others don't have unprotected exposure to the patient. This episode of EMS One Stop is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Hello and welcome back to EMS One Stop. I'm your host, Rob Lawrence, and the topic of today's discussion is Ebola. We've been here once before. We've had a number of emerging uh, critical uh, conditions and pathogens in the past. Uh, we seem to have skipped right over monkeypox. Um, we're kind of waving bye-bye, or so we think, to to uh, the pandemic. But today is Ebola, and to join me is a returning guest, uh, my good friend, uh, Dr. Alex Isakoff, who's the Executive Director of Emory's Office of Critical Events Preparedness and Response, also Professor of Emergency Medicine at Emory University School of Medicine, um, is also the Director for Emory's Section of Pre-Hospital and Disaster Medicine, and for NETEC, he leads the EMS Workgroup Developing Education Resources to Improve EMS and Community Disaster Resilience. Alex, that's a mouthful. Do you have any spare time? You know, you handled it beautifully, though, Rob. And it's always great to be here together with you. Excellent. And welcome back. Uh, It's always good to have you on, too. And we're going to talk about Ebola today. But just give us a recap. We're guilty of acronym-itis in EMS. So just explain what NITEC is for us all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Rob, so NITEC is the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Um, It was uh, founded uh, after the 2014 through 2016 Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And uh, the principal uh, organizations are uh, Emory University, Nebraska uh, Medicine, and um, Bellevue in New York. Uh, These were three institutions that uh, uh, received and then treated patients with confirmed Ebola virus disease and that 2014-2016 outbreak. And now they're involved in, in a lot of activities to try and improve um, uh, the U.S.'s ability to manage a patient with a high-consequence infectious disease um, and also to safely transport a patient with a high-consequence infectious disease. They work on readiness metrics, uh, provide technical consultation, develop and disseminate education and training. They have um, consortia for research We have a consortium for uh, EMS agencies that are supporting the 10 regional special pathogens treatment centers in the U.S. Um, It's quite an enterprise, and I'm privileged to be a part of that group and uh, leading esteemed colleagues in the uh, EMS uh, world. Thank you for explaining that. And uh, I I feel like I almost just kind of brushed off and brushed over both monkeypox and the pandemic. But before we get into Ebola, why don't you give us a recap? The last time we spoke, we talked about monkeypox, but did that come go? Was nothing? So where are we with all of these other, um, you know, existing um, concerns, shall we say? Well, it's a great question, uh, Rob. I think, uh, as you've mentioned, uh, COVID-19 
uh, is still uh, present. There's always the risk of a new variant, one that can be transmitted you know, more uh, readily. Uh, there's always the risk of another variant that could cause more serious illness. Um, you know, we continue to get good guidance about how to implement infection prevention measures for our own safety, especially for people that are at risk for having more serious disease. Um, the uh, evolution of variants continues to be uh, monitored, as does an adjustment to uh, vaccinations. And now, as uh, probably most of the listeners know, there's a bivalent vaccine available uh, to protect you from COVID-19, uh, one that would protect you from the ancestral strains as well as um, m- more recently circulating variants. So uh, as I did before, I'd say get vaccinated. With uh, the monkeypox um, outbreak, uh, it's also not completely uh, gone. I think it's still important for the EMS community to have an awareness of how those cases might present um, and uh, recognize that uh, they can present in very atypical ways, not always uh, having a fever, sometimes having a, the vesicles of the rash only in very uh, local, you know, discrete parts of your body as opposed to generalized um, uh, distribution of the rash. Uh, the good news is the uh, number of uh, cases per day being identified uh, globally and in the United States is going down. So we're going in the right direction. Uh, meaning we uh, have uh, much better control of this outbreak and and hope to have it uh, completely con- controlled and contained. Um, but it's still important uh, to be vigilant. And if you look on the world stage, uh, the United States is still identifying, uh, uh, they're still the leader in identification of monkeypox cases globally. Um, and so, you know, more work to be done, Rob, but, uh, but thankfully, you know, both of those, um, issues, COVID-19 pandemic uh, trending in the right direction, and the monkeypox outbreak, though devastating for individual patients, um, uh, also from a population standpoint, going in the right direction. Thank you for that update, Alex. Uh, For the show notes for this particular podcast, we're going to have a lot of references and a lot of go-to things, so uh, we'll talk about some of them, but uh, I've got a whole list of things that we're going to publish to help people through any of these presenting conditions. Moving on to Ebola, we all have memories of the last time it came around. I was certainly in an ambulance service. We put one truck aside. We decked it out in plastic. We gave it a name. It was the Ebola coaster. And uh, we were all prepared to deal with it. It's come round again. I think it's a different strain. I think it has potential non-vaccine sort of qualities at the moment. So let's just talk about the strain before we get into the the precautions, etc. What do, what can you tell us? Yeah, uh, good point, Rob. And, and before I even get into the strain, let me say, since you referenced that Ebola outbreak in 2014 and 2016, I mean that was quite a uh, dramatic and unique event. In in that there were over 20,000 cases, there were over 10,000 deaths reported in that outbreak. Uh, obviously, we all hope to never go there again. And the best way uh, to protect the global community uh, from uh, the consequences of Ebola virus disease is to best uh, better control it in places where uh, it can be, um, you know, first emerge, right? Like we're seeing today in Uganda. You mentioned um, different species of Ebola virus disease, and, and that is not something that's brand new. There are six species of Ebola virus uh, four of them make humans ill. Um, the species that was responsible for the outbreak in 2014 through 2016 was the Ebola Zaire virus. 
Um, this is the um, Ebola Sudan virus. Uh, it, the last outbreak of the Ebola Sudan virus was in 2012, um, and it was controlled. Uh, what this what makes it maybe an issue to contend with is that while uh, the, the large outbreak of Ebola virus disease in 2014 through 2016 made it possible to uh, evaluate the safety and effectiveness of vaccines to protect you from uh, Ebola Zaire species, um, and also to uh, test the effectiveness of various other types of medical interventions like monoclonal antibodies that you might receive intravenously. Um, with uh, the uh, Ebola um, Sudan uh, species, because that has not been, uh, that we've not had big outbreaks um, in order, or to, that would afford us the opportunity to test vaccine. Um, there is no licensed vaccine to protect you against uh, contracting uh, Ebola Sudan uh, species and uh, medical countermeasures also not uh, readily available in the same way as they were for Ebola Zaire. Um, and so uh, what we may see on that front, Rob, is that um, there are uh, the WHO reports that there are six vaccine uh, candidates for uh, Ebola Sudan species. And so they will probably um, look for approvals to test those vaccines in, in affected areas. And, it, and that will be good news for everyone to have an effective vaccine against uh, this species of Ebola. You actually answered to almost my next question and I, I was telling a number of people that I was coming on to talk to you about Ebola and of course the standard response was well hang on a minute it's over there in Africa why the hell should we worry about it here and I think you've elegantly answered that that these days it doesn't take much to get it over here and uh, I, I think you've covered that uh, should we be worried about the fact that there isn't the appropriate specific vaccine or is that something that uh, we just need to uh, deal with no, it's something that we deal with. Uh, it's This is not the first time that the world has seen an outbreak of uh, Ebola Sudan species. Like we said, the last outbreak was in 2012 and it was controlled. Um, I mean, vaccine is just uh, really increases your ability to quickly control outbreaks, um, both uh uh, you know, among a population that's affected and helps to protect the healthcare personnel that are trying to care, right, for people that get sick in those countries. Um, but, uh, but you can prevent transmission of uh, Ebola virus disease by, you know, implementation of uh, appropriate infection uh, prevention measures. Um, in all the cases that uh, were managed, um, you know, early in that 2014 through 2016 outbreak, there was really no benefit from vaccine in those days and, um, you know, either in the United States or overseas and uh, patients were, uh, you know, managed safely uh, by healthcare personnel who were properly trained in those infection prevention measures. And that's a big part of what uh, you know, we're doing, we did in 2014 through 2016 for frontline healthcare workers and the EMS community, make them aware of uh, that, identify, isolate, and inform paradigm, make them aware of um, measures they can take to prevent exposure to infectious uh, bodily fluids and, and stay safe. Um, I do want to address, Rob, I mean, one point that you made in someone, you know, asking you, well, why talk about Ebola here in the United States? You know, this is uh, nowhere near, again, the magnitude of the outbreak of Ebola that we saw in 2014 through 2016. But um, there are, uh, you know, a couple hundred travelers a day 
who have spent time um, in Uganda that returned to the United States. And, uh, and so there's always a chance, even with screening of travelers before they leave the country and re- screening of travelers as they return to the United States, which we know that Department of Homeland Security are now funneling through uh, five uh, airports um, in the U.S., um, you can still feel well, not know that you've been exposed, pass those screens with flying colors, and then later after you know, returning home, develop signs and symptoms of illness. There's additional measures. The health departments are also monitoring travelers on their return. So there are plenty of uh, controls here to prevent a case from just sort of popping up in your 911 system. But it really is, um, it is important to be prepared to recognize uh, if you encounter somebody who has the right travel history, you know, travel to Uganda specifically in the last 21 days and some signs and symptoms of illness that um, you, know, you should take the appropriate measures to protect yourself and then inform um, you know, appropriate uh, partners uh, that you have concerns somebody uh, may have Ebola virus disease. The E in NITEC stands for education. And so when we come back uh, after the sponsor message, we'll start to talk about some of the sage advice that's uh, on your website, the NITEC website, and get into things people need to be considering and planning and preparing for. But as I say, first of all, let's go to a message from our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly. Serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities, Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioural health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Thank you, as always, to our sponsor. I'm here with Dr. Alex Isakoff from NITEC, and we'll carry on the conversation in a second. But don't forget, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Amazon Music. Remember, we're on a new channel here. We separated from our friends inside EMS, and uh, One Stop is all on its own. So please like and subscribe. Talking to which, if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to rate and review us on the platform that you're listening on. Alex, let's talk about the E and the tech. Let's educate and do some uh, some refreshing and some reminding. And the general topic, of course, is identify, isolate, and inform. Uh, talk us through that. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rob. Uh, I think this is a, it's an important um, and fairly easy way to uh, protect the EMS community by helping them recognize, by identifying uh, somebody that uh, may have Ebola virus disease and then giving them the uh, knowledge uh, and tools to isolate, meaning protect uh, the personnel from exposure to infectious bodily fluids and then indicating uh, the need to inform others. So in the identify portion of this for Ebola virus disease, actually very similar to information that was uh, made widely available in 2014 through 2016. Um, and still available on CDC's website as well as on NITEC's website, is you know being able to recognize that someone may actually have Ebola virus disease. Critical to that today um, is the travel history um, and exposure history. There are no cases today, October 21st, uh, 2022. There are no cases in the United States. And so uh, you would have had to have traveled to Uganda, um, where the current outbreak is isolated. 
um, or um, have interacted with somebody who was uh, sick with Ebola virus disease. But the travel history within the last 21 days, Rob, because that's the incubation period uh, for uh, Ebola, more typically eight to 10 days, the incubation period, but a range from anywhere from two to 21 days. Um, If uh, you've had travel to a country with Ebola um, activity, like there is today in Uganda, in the last 21 days, and you're developing signs and symptoms of illness, which typically starts with a fever and just some muscle aches, you know, myalgias, maybe then some GI upset, nausea, vomiting, but then rapidly progresses to uh, really significant, you know, volume losses from vomiting and diarrhea. You can proceed to then have you know, significant electrolyte abnormalities, go into uh, shock, uh, have multi-organ uh, dysfunction, um, as you see, as reported in this particular outbreak, about two-thirds of people that are getting um, sick with Ebola uh, in Uganda have died. Um, outcomes in the United States and other countries where you have greater ability to deliver critical care uh, for patients that are ill and apply that those critical care dimensions early get better outcomes. Um, if you recall, in the U.S., there were 11 cases of Ebola virus disease um, among Americans treated in the U.S., and nine of them survived, thankfully. But identifying those uh, cases is important um, because of the risk that, you know, should you have an unprotected exposure and contract the illness, um, that you could get very sick. So identify. Travel to an affected country, in this case Uganda, uh, in the last 21 days, and development of signs and symptoms of illness like um, fever, chills, myalgias, GI upset, um, and others. Let me cut in, Alex, and then ask the obvious question or make the obvious statement that the onus on this comes back down to those in communication centres and 911 call takers, etc., to ensure they ask. And of course, thinking back to the last Ebola outbreak, we had a card in the card set that talked about uh, uh, Ebola, particularly getting a travel history is absolutely vital. And this is kind of an aside, but we had a rather interesting event in my communication centre where the patient said they'd been to Guyana, And it kind of sounds kind of African, but of course, we know it's in South America. And so, of course, you need to understand where these places are in the world. And we know Uganda and Sudan, Zaire are in Africa. But also, you just need to make sure you're double checking because we started to rouse the troops. And then somebody went, hang on a second. This is South America, not Africa. So Mm -hmm. you have to be aware of where these locations are as you ask the questions and you receive the answers. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's that's absolutely right. Uh, Rob and and I think it is it's it's important it's valuable to know where the outbreak is um, and to have the name of the location correct just so you don't sound a false alarm right um, uh, and uh, you know it's not every country in Africa just because Uganda is in Africa doesn't mean that every country in Africa um, has a traveler at risk for exposure to Ebola virus um, it's currently uh, in just in Uganda. Um, And you're right. Uh, The questions around travel history and signs and symptoms of illness can be built in to 911 call taking center um, algorithms. Uh, But uh, I don't think we can rely on that uh, completely. Uh, We also should uh, have our frontline personnel uh, who are making patient contact um, consider asking that question as well. You know, any travel outside the United States in the last 21 days, most people say no. And then you can be quite you know, comfortable that uh, they haven't been exposed to Ebola virus. Um, 
So, uh, but I would say, yes, there's, va- there's a role for this in call centers and uh, among uh, frontline personnel making patient contact. I will acknowledge, though, that, again, to one of your uh, you know, colleagues who asked why you talk about Ebola at all, that, I mean, the likelihood of someone in the United States, or uh, let's say of EMS personnel uh, finding someone who's recently traveled to Uganda and have signs and symptoms of Ebola virus is still very low. You know, maybe maybe so low that in many communities uh, at this point they would not decide to introduce those questions into their nine one one call taking algorithms because they don't want to distract from the primary uh, role of identifying somebody you know who has a life threatening uh, illness. Um, but uh, but for communities that believe they could be at, at higher risk, um, and as we said. Uh, there are travelers that are, you know, being directed to five airports in the United States. It may be that those communities feel that there's increased need. Here in Atlanta, we have our colleagues, you know, who work uh, next door at the CDC and, and others who are doing humanitarian work uh, in the affected country. And um, we think it important to, to screen uh, for travel history and signs and symptoms here. Well, we're going through my checklist quite nicely now. We've discussed identify, isolate, inform Uh, Let's move on to PPE and cleaning and disinfectant. PPE has been a major saga slash disaster slash problem slash procurement issue for us during the pandemic. Um, But what sage advice can you give us? Yeah, good, good uh, question, Robin. So we'll quickly move to PPE because that's your question. You know, uh, I like to always emphasize the value of a hierarchy of controls uh, to protect or protect you uh, from exposure to infectious bodily fluids or prevent ever having been come in contact with infectious bodily fluids. And there is some more guidance about this available um, on the NETEC website uh, rather than take a tremendous amount of time here talking about it. But it includes... Um, setting up your ambulance in a certain way to protect the driver compartment and to protect environmental services. Surfaces should someone, you know, vomit or have a diarrhea spill there. Um, It also, you know, means uh, work practices that would maybe limit the number of uh, people to the minimum number necessary to manage the patient um, as a measure of uh, avoiding exposure to infectious bodily fluids. But to get to the PPE, the, uh, the PPE recommendation actually follows standard precautions. So everything we do is standard precautions, plus contact, plus droplet. And then if an aerosol generating procedure was needed, and we know what some of those are, suctioning the airway, endotracheal intubation, um, an aerosol generating procedure, then uh, airborne precautions are recommended. So because we know that uh, it's not easy to swap PPE in the back of your ambulance um, if you have a confirmed uh, case that you're transporting or uh, you have a, a person under investigation, so someone who's had the right travel history, the right signs and symptoms, and they're unstable, meaning they're vomiting or having profound diarrhea or maybe they're confused, then the recommendation is um, impervious coverall, face uh, shield with N95 respirator as a minimum, or hooded papper, boot covers. In hospitals, they'll also use apron and double gloves. In the EMS community, we less often see the apron. We all we, we do see the double gloves. Impervious coverall, N95 respirator, and f- uh, full face shield or hooded papper, uh, double gloves, um, boot covers. That's the mainstay of of um, of the PPE ensemble that would be required if you had a. Um, confirmed case or uh, a case that's deemed unstable. We don't have to spend a tremendous amount of time on this, Rob, but the CDC does afford a different 
PPE ensemble in the case where you have an Ebola person under investigation, but they're they're very stable. So imagine that you have somebody who's recently traveled back from Uganda in the last 21 days and they have a fever. Now, there are a lot of reasons why you might have a fever and you are more likely to have some other illness uh, like malaria than you are to have Ebola virus disease after having returned from uh, Uganda or many other uh, parts of Africa. Um, under those circumstances, a different PPE ensemble uh, is appropriate that is in compliance with standard precautions plus contact plus droplet, and that would be full face shield surgical mask, a um, coverall or gown that's, uh, that's water resistant. And, uh, and that does make it a lot easier, uh, one, to have that kind of equipment or gear on hand, and there's a lot less thermal stress associated with that. And, uh, you know, if, if you're applying it appropriately, it's, it's, uh, it's safe. So let's talk about inform and who do we tell, how do we report, who do we report to? So, uh, Rob, I mean, the first thing you want to do, you know how EMS scenes are. There are multiple responders there. You know, if you've um, identified somebody who's had the right travel history and signs and symptoms and you suspect they could have Ebola virus disease, you've got to inform the other responders on, uh, on the scene um, that uh, you suspect that uh, this person might have Ebola virus disease. And so uh, you do that to make sure others don't have unprotected exposure to the patient. I mean, this is a disease that's mostly transmitted through direct contact with uh, infectious bodily fluids um, or heavy droplets, like from, you know, coughing or sneezing because it can be in your saliva. Um, this is, there's no reported transmission of this from human to human by the airborne route. Um, so that six foot standoff distance is, is very valuable um, uh, for other responders. Um, and so uh, you also want to inform, no doubt, your supervisory personnel. But the sooner you might inform your local uh, or state public health authority, the better. There may be special resources available in your community, um, EMS personnel that have had special education and training to safely uh, transport and manage uh, a patient with a high-consequence infectious disease. There may be specialty teams available in your area, so that's another good reason to inform others. And if you are... Um, Actually, the agency that will transfer uh, or transport that patient uh, to um, to a nearby nearby hospital, maybe according to some um, uh, transportation plan your community has for high consequence infectious disease, you know, suspected people, people who are suspected to have high consequence infectious disease, um, that the receiving facility gets informed uh, with enough time that they can make the space for that that patient and. Um, get the appropriate, uh, you know, PPE on the healthcare personnel that would receive that patient. Um, that's, uh, that's good for everyone's safety and might also prevent uh, our EMS friends from sitting on an ambulance ramp for, you know, an extended period of time while the receiving hospital is getting ready. You touched on a number of things there. Communication with your receiving hospital, clearly because there's going to be special measures, special entrances, and also before that, some training and exercising. And that kind of just brings me on to the resources that are at the Needtech website. So for homework, everybody, if you visit needtech.org, there is not only uh, Alex's uh, uh, breakdown of Ebola, but also there is an impressive amount of references and everything from both CDC documents to Needtech stuff to the infectious disease playbook and a personal favorite, the link to run your own regional tabletop exercise for Ebola. And that's where you need to get all of those partners in, in order to work out what happens. And I think uh, you've made some excellent ones, excellent references there. 
Uh, also, our friends at First Watch, firstwatch.net, um, doing the biosurveillance, have also got a, an amazing health intelligence library that you can help yourself to as well. So there's no shortage of resource and research that you can do. No, I agree with that, Robin. Thanks for the shout out. Uh, there was uh, just a few days ago, um, you know, what Neetech call, calls an EMS blog uh, on Ebola, just to refresh everyone's memory about identify, isolate, and inform for Ebola. You might remember uh, a similar blog was uh, issued for, uh, for monkeypox. Uh, just to increase awareness in the uh, EMS community. And as you say, there are other resources linked there. Um, CDC has uh, two uh, links up now um, that you will recognize from the 2014-2016 outbreak, the information um, in those two links. One, the interim guidance for 911 call centers and EMS uh, responders, uh, as well as a guidance uh, for uh, interfacility transport planning, uh, has a lot of good information there. Asper Tracy uh, um, fielded a EMS infectious disease playbook uh, shortly after the last outbreak, and that information is also good, very relevant. Uh, actually, that that reference was developed um, because of uh, a need to disseminate information. Um, about Ebola outbreaks, it just became a much more comprehensive document so that it would be appropriate for any number of, uh, of pathogens. Um, and, uh, and the other reference uh, to resources, uh, Rob, uh, endorsed them as well. Uh, there's, there's good material out there. Um, we just need to let the EMS community um, know where it is and, and try to point them to resources that can help them be ready in the most you know, expeditious manner possible. There's a lot of work to be done out there, as we know. Um, We just got to make it easier for people to get prepared. I just wanted to come back in and actually remind us all that uh, podcast airwaves know no borders. Uh, We also have uh, listeners north of the border. And I come back to the the First Watch Health Intelligence page because of of their work with the paramedic chiefs of Canada. They're also putting up the, the Canadian advisories as well. So if you're listening to this in Canada, there's also some, it's not just CDC-centric and NETEC-centric. Of course, there, there are some references for our friends uh, north of the border as well. So I thought I'd just make that note. Yeah, I appreciate that, Rob. They were, they were kind enough to, to host a webinar uh, back in the 2014-2016 um, outbreak that I was uh, a participant in. Um, a great group up there, and, and they'll have great resources. Anything else we want to cover, Alex? Maybe we didn't emphasize it, uh, but I'll emphasize it now. I think uh, the relationship between the EMS community and the public health community is also an important relationship um, because this is where, again, we're getting a lot of evidence uh, for the development of the guidance that's being uh, distributed. And they are real players in um, the uh, operations uh, as it might relate to interfacility transfer of a patient in your community um, or across state lines to a regional special pathogens treatment center. Um, so it's, it all takes a partnership to, to make it work well, including partnership with you, Rob. I uh, really appreciate, of course, the opportunity to join you here. And um, you have a great audience. And um, I know they respect you and your content a lot. And so it's a privilege to come and um, share what NETEC has um, and our other partners uh, have to better prepare our community for the possibility of uh, someone returning to the United States with Ebola virus disease. 
Well, this is the point I say that you said that just the way I wrote it for you. So thank you for your kind <laughs> words. But uh, in all seriousness, thank you so much, Alex, for being a part of this. I just have to tell you one little anecdote before we go. And that uh, my good friend, uh, Peter Simpson, a UK paramedic, when the Ebola uh, pandemic broke out in Sierra Leone, he was deployed one person from the UK to run the Sierra Leone Ambulance Service. Hmm, and wow. he took in his suitcase a ton of duct tape. And uh, his plan was he was going to duct tape his his PPE and his gloves all together. And the first thing they took away from him and threw away was the duct tape. And he's like, yeah. why are you doing that? And that's because donning with duct tape is fine. But when you doff, it rips the, the, the PPE, it rips the Tyvek, and you then become immediately exposed. So when I heard this, I immediately went back to my logistics store and went, did you just buy a ton of duct tape? Yes, we did, because we're going to tape ourselves in. No, we threw yeah. it all away. No, we didn't well, throw yeah. it away. We, well, you we know, it, it. yeah, yeah, Rob, you know, I don't know if we're on the record or off the record here, but what I'll share is, as you know, um, I mean, there are, I, I don't think I know how many different types of tapes are being marketed and what adhesives are being used. But what you say is, is absolutely right. You know, working on a team that does tape the seams of their PPE, you have to have the right tape. Um, if you have one that has, exactly. like, you know, yeah, if you have the wrong adhesive, then exactly what you describe will happen. You will shred your glove, you'll shred your PPE, you're creating more risk. But it's, uh, it is possible to find uh, tape that has the appropriate adhesive where it just helps to secure a seam and can be removed safely. But I appreciate the point that it's an important one. Yeah, and that's exactly how the post-it note was invented. We didn't have the right we, – we, we, the glue was too weak. Um, my other serious top tip for you guys, if you're going to have to get into PPE and don it for a period of time, particularly around the Ebola risk, are you ready for this? P first before you get <laughs> suited up. Um, we had this exact scenario. We yeah. put these two guys in their suits, and they're like, oh, no, we've got to pee. So no, seriously, yeah. my parting advice, pee first. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And you know what? you got to do that. Don't go the other route and decide that you're going to go into this mission dehydrated because if you're going to be in a coverall and hooded papper for any length of time, you need to be reasonably well hydrated. Uh, but I agree with you, you know, pee first. On this podcast, we all, always bring you the academic and then the practical. Alex, thank you so much. How can we follow you and get hold of you? Oh, uh, Rob, you know, it's easy. I mean, you can find all the content that we're developing uh, in this uh, piece at neetech.org. Um, and I always uh, entertain um, uh, emails and uh, happy to respond to, to questions at uh, aisaacov at emory.edu. If you have technical questions, there is a, uh, there's a portal on the neetech.org website, too, that I'd encourage you to use uh, in the EMS community. You can post your question there, and you will uh, be certain to have an answer back in a few days, uh, either penned by me or, or one of my uh, colleagues at Neetech uh, who have a good answer for you. You know, Rob, what I haven't done yet, I'll have to, I, I'll have to, uh, you know, buy you a beverage or, or lunch. You're going to have to tell me how to become uh, uh, more uh, present in the um, uh, social, uh, uh, social media, I guess, sphere. I still don't have, uh, I still don't have a, of, uh, I guess, what is it, a Twitter account? Is that what it is? A Twitter account? <laughs> yes, I, I, I will be your personal publicist, Alex, and uh, I'll, I'll run I'll run your, the Twitter account for you because right. what you have to say needs to be heard, and it's a great medium to get things out there. So, yeah, well, uh, I, yeah, well, that, that's not that. that's an offer I can't refuse. 
Excellent. Well, let's leave it there. That's about all for now. Uh, thanks to my guest, Dr. Alex Isaacoff from NITEC. It's the National Emerging Special Pathogen Training and Education Centre. Remember that. So, Alex Isaacoff, thank you so much. And I hope to see you again soon. Yeah, me too, Rob. Thanks again for having me. So don't forget, you can also follow me on Twitter at UKRobL1, over on LinkedIn. This has been EMS One Stop. He was Dr. Alex Isaacoff. I am Rob Lawrence. Until next time, bye for now.